So with the time that we have, we will walk through Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Wonderful passage. Wonderful passage. If you want to give a title to our study tonight, we'll entitle it this, The School of Grace. The School of Grace. No doubt to mention grace brings to mind familiar hymn lyrics, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I do that one more time. But ne- but now I, okay, there we go. Beloved words from a well-known hymn coming from a man enthralled with grace. If you're not familiar with John Newton, John Newton, of course, wrote Amazing Grace. He was born in the 1700s to a godly mother and to a father who was quite the opposite, irreligious, did not fear God, and a father who spent his time out on the sea. This is the family that John Newton entered into. When he was six years old, tragically, his mother died. Then at the age of 11, John Newton went out onto the seas with his father. By the time that he was 18, he had already made up to five trips to the Mediterranean, there from where he lived in England. When he was 18, he was forced to enter into naval service. And here, uh, with all the rough companions out on the sea, Newton declined in his life, declined into a pattern of sin. Here is a man who had no fear of God. He had a hardened conscience. He was a sinning sailor. Fast forward a few years when he was 21, he was sailing near an island off the coast of West Africa. He was put off the ship, and for the next year and a half, Newton was effectually forced to live almost like a a slave. And miraculously, in God's providence, after some time passed, a ship had come to the island. Uh, The captain of that ship happened to know John Newton's father and worked out John Newton's freedom. Again, already an adventurous life. Think master and commander, the image of the seas. Yet tragically still at this point, Newton, not a believer, hardened in his sin, continued to sail, continued to sin, until one specific night where Newton would record a storm hit, a Horrible storm where the ship was filled with water. He having to work the pumps from 3 a.m. till noon. In the midst of that, somehow he said that he slept one hour. In the midst, you think of the scene, the desperation. All the men on board doing all they can to keep uh, the ship afloat, to get the water off the ship. The intensity, how scared he must have been. That in the midst of that storm, Newton began to reflect on God. He began to think about his own life. He began to call out to God for mercy. Grace began to work in Newton. Finally, when they came to some safety, Newton found a Bible. He read, and as he continued to read and he continued to pray, the ship finally reached safely in Ireland 
And at some point in that process, grace invaded Newton's life and John Newton was converted. He became a Christian. And he would write, I stood in need of an almighty Savior and such a one I found described in the New Testament. You probably know then the rest of the story. Newton saved. He then would become a pastor. As he was a pastor, he also was a hymn writer. And as a pastor and as a hymn writer, he also wrote letters where he would go and minister to others. A remarkable life. A sinner, a sailor, a slave, and a slave trader to then be saved himself. All by the grace of God. Grace can transform someone. Grace can invade someone's life and radically change who they are and their direction. That, of course, happened with John Newton. It also happened with the author of our letter tonight, the Apostle Paul. You think of what you know about the Apostle Paul. He, in his former life, saw this zealot, zealot in persecuting Christians, uh, zealous uh, against the Lord until God in his grace saved Paul. And no doubt Paul saved by the grace of God how he loved the grace of God. That's especially on display in the letter in front of us tonight, the book of Titus. Titus, a small book, three chapters. One of the pastoral epistles. He writes it to this ministry companion, a young ministry companion, Titus, who's there seeking to minister on the island of Crete. Titus is trying to pastor the people there, uh, a wicked people themselves. Paul trying to help Titus, instructing him in chapter 1, verse 5, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Again, the chief key concern that Titus needs to give himself to as he's ministering there is that these godly, biblically qualified elders would be put in place. The qualifications described in verses 6 through 9, that for anyone who would be a godly leader in the church, and especially this office of elder, before even any gifting, there must be character and there must be godliness. That was important. That was a concern. These elders, as they would minister to the flock, they were to be on guard for all false teaching that could come in. They were to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who would contradict. Paul then moves into chapter 2 to begin to address how Titus is to teach and instruct different kinds of people in the church. With the social order of the time, the older men and the older women, the younger men and the younger women, even slaves in that society. How the grace of God was to impact them, how it was that they were to live. And right on the heels of that, very direct, very specific instruction, we finally at last come to our study tonight. Why don't I read? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. 
God's word reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Again, do you see it here on display? Paul will think of truth about the future But woven throughout, there's instruction for how to live in the present. So tonight we come to be enrolled in the school of grace, to have grace to be our guide and our teacher. Paul will write of this grace in verse 11 that it has appeared bringing salvation to all men. He writes in such a way as to highlight and to emphasize that this grace of God, it has appeared, it has come, and it has revealed itself. He takes this concept of grace and he really personifies it. No doubt in his mind, the full picture and demonstration of God's grace, the person and the work of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That yes, God was, is always gracious, gracious through and through, but Paul writes in a unique way, in a specific way, at a certain time in history, human history, it's as if this grace was put on center stage. It went public. No doubt he's thinking of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his birth in his life, in his death, burial, resurrection, no doubt also ascension. That this grace in Christ has appeared. Appeared, why? Bringing salvation to all men. That's a unique phrase. We don't want to misunderstand it. Some have taken this and run in the wrong direction to think that this would teach that all people of all time will end up in heaven. In other words, universalism. But you're students of the Bible. You understand that context is king as we read and interpret the Bible. Look back to the verses just before. How do we make sense of that phrase, all men? Well, as we saw back in chapter 2, Paul is thinking of different kinds of people, different categories of people. In verses 2 through 10, he writes of older men, older women, young women, young men, slaves, all different kinds according to the social order of the day. That's what Paul has in mind. That's what he's thinking of when he says this grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men or all people. It's all kinds of people. And helpful maybe to tuck away this phrase 
when you come across passages that speak of things in the universal sense, all, sometimes we have to wrestle through, is this an all without exception? Or an all without distinction? It's the latter that Paul writes of here. All without distinction. Men, women, older men, young men, older women, young women. Isn't that, by the way, good news? I look out in this room tonight. There are people all across the spectrum. Young men, young women, older men, older women. Silver saints. I think that's what we, the term we use around here. That this grace of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has brought salvation to all kinds of people. No matter what status, no matter your age, all without distinction. Now, grace is going to take us by the hand. This grace that's appeared, this grace that is to impact us in the present. Tonight, then, with grace as our teacher, as we go back to school, as we said a moment ago, grace really wants to teach us two lessons. Got to listen up tonight. Two lessons. No doubt that we can be amazed at God's grace and then see how it's to impact the way we live here in the present. Again, to remind all of us, why is it that we would care? Well, because God has written this, but no doubt, as Paul has just said at the end of verse 10, when we live this way, the way that God tells us, the way that brings him glory, we begin to adorn the doctrine of God in every respect. That the way that you and I live, no doubt, stands out in this world. It looks so different in this godless society. It looks different, but it also is meant to look attractive. People look at the life of a Christian, living the Christian life, understanding who God is, understanding their purpose in this world, to know God, to glorify and enjoy Him forever, to love Him and love others. And as they see someone living that out faithfully, whether you're that older man, whether you're this older woman, whether you're the young man or the young woman, again, here tonight maybe wrestling with, what do I do with my life? How is it that I can honor God? Do I need to just go and hide myself in a room and, and open my Bible and read 12 hours a day? And if somehow I can't do that, I'm not glorifying God with my life? Oh no, the passage tonight, thinking through whatever station of life you're in, grace now wants you to understand how you are to be changed, how you can live in a way that brings God glory and dresses up this doctrine that God would look great. He is great. When someone sees a human life transformed by the grace of God, for some, no doubt, the aroma of Christ is an aroma from death to death, but for others, it's an aroma of life to life. They're drawn in, they're captivated, and you then can give them the good news of the gospel. So how is it that we are to live? 
what is it that grace teaches us? First, in verse 12, grace teaches us how to live in this world. How to live in this world. Paul will write and really address two sides of the same coin from two different angles, negatively, positively, the whole picture. How we are to live here and now in the present. What grace is to do as it teaches and instructs us. First up, he will write, here's what it is you and I ought to avoid. Or you can think of it this way. What is it that we need to turn from? Again, the gospel changes everything. When grace invades your life, no doubt it exposes sin and it reveals there are some things in an ever-increasing way you have to turn from and let go and deny. What is it we are to deny? We are to deny ungodliness. In fact, when he says deny, I mean, he, he speaks strongly here. Good reminder, you and I can't flirt with that which displeases God. Sin in the Christian life, we're not to get cute with it, we're not to coddle it, we're not to make excuses for it. No, rather, this ungodliness, grace teaches us to turn from it and literally deny, say no, refuse and renounce. Grace educates us, grace instructs us to deny, to say no to this ungodliness. What is this ungodliness? Oh, how much time do we have to live with no fear of God? To live with no reverence for God? To live life without any concern for God? To live life without regard for him? To live life according to what's described in Romans chapter 1, what God's wrath is against? ungodliness that would manifest with the love for idols, whatever that idol might be, a physical thing or even a a mental thing or a desire that we so elevate and cling to, we would say we must have in order to be happy. Immorality of any sort, even just under that label of a practical atheist living Life as if there is no God. Grace comes, grace intervenes, grace with the ruler slaps us on the wrist and it says, no, no, you can't live that way in the Christian life. It teaches us to renounce that. It teaches us to say no to that. Instead, to come back on track, I will live with regard for God. It will actually make a difference whether I'm out in public or if I'm alone in private. It's going to teach me to renounce and deny ungodliness, but also worldly desires. Grace is going to bring to light the deep down hidden desires in the heart. Desires that originally were given by God to Adam in the garden, and they were perfect and good and right on the right object and in right proportion. 
But then because of sin, polluting, twisting, corrupting those desires, where we would love what we should hate and we hate what we should love, but then grace intervenes. In the new birth, even these desires and even these affections, they're rectified and they are regulated, in the words of the Puritan Thomas Boston. Rectified meaning set again on the proper object and regulated meaning we love God or we begin to love God the way we ought to and love others the way we ought to without that imbalance. Not in a perfect way, we await that in heaven, but in an ever-growing way in the Christian life, we begin to deny these once sinful worldly desires and renounce them, turn from them, say no to them. The Bible says a lot about these lusts. John will speak of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Peter will speak of the fleshly lusts. Paul will speak of youthful lusts, foolish and harmful lusts, or here, worldly lusts. And again, once before Christ, we were dominated by them. We were enslaved to these lusts. Until grace enters in, setting the captive free, freeing us from this slavery, bringing us to a new master, and beginning to instruct and change who we are from the inside out. And Spurgeon described it. He said, wherever the grace of God comes effectually, powerfully, He wrote, it makes the loose liver deny the desires of the flesh. It causes the man who lusted after gold to conquer his greediness. It brings the proud man away from his ambitions. It trains the idle to diligence. It sobers the wanton mind which cared only for the frivolities of life. Not only do we leave these lusts, we deny them. We have an abhorrence of those things wherein we formerly placed our delight. We say no to them. We deny them. And they begin to creep up inside and they're out of bounds for something that God clearly demarcates as sin whether it becomes out of balance and we love something more than we ought to and desire it more than we should, grace instructs us, grace teaches us to bring them back into proper order and back onto the proper object. In other words, grace teaches us what we must turn from what we must avoid in this present world. But it's not enough to just say no. Maybe you're caught here tonight. You understand this aspect. You're struggling still. You're battling. Why is it that I'm not experiencing victory? 
Well, are you missing the counterpart? Grace teaches us what to avoid. Grace teaches us also what it is we are to pursue, what it is we are to say yes to. Or again, thinking of the image of the coin, turning from and what we turn to. What is it that we turn to? How does it teach us to live? What? begins to address three specific areas. Sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age. Maybe it's helpful to understand these three terms using three different directions. Inward, outward, upward. That as grace begins to work in someone, it begins to work inwardly in regards to ourselves. That more and more we begin to live sensibly. A unique word, think self-controlled. It's a word that Paul loves to use in this letter. He uses it in chapter 1 verse 8. Elders are to be models of being sensible. Chapter 2, verse 2, older men are to be sensible. Chapter 2, verse 5, younger women are to be known for being sensible. And young men, chapter 2, verse 6, they too are to be sensible. What is it to be self-controlled? Self-controlled, maybe again, back to those desires. Having a mastery over them to be in control of yourself and not just giving in to every whim that arises, to show some self-restraint, and no doubt all beginning first in the mind to be sober, to be sound, to be clear-headed. More and more self-control showing up in someone's life a change that begins to take place inwardly and then outwardly, outwardly in regards to others. That grace teaches us how to live righteously, to live upright, uh, to have a sense of what's right and good and moral and pure, and to live in light of that, to live in light of truth and with integrity. Grace begins to transform our relations Think if you're married, it ought to change the way you interact with your spouse or begin to interact with your children if God's blessed you with children. It begins to impact the way you interact with people in the church or interact with those outside of church. Very simply, you begin to look at people, not just how can they help me, how can I help them? Not just commodities that can bring me benefit, but how can I actively, sacrificially show love towards them and do good to them? How can I better them? How can I serve them? How can I do what is right for their sake? You get a wonderful picture of this character back in Psalm 15. You don't have to turn there. 
that Psalm 15, verse 3, the psalmist speaks, He does not slander with his tongue, nor does he do evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up a reproach against his friend. No, there's, there's righteousness. There's kind character in speech and in treatment. Again, surely grace should change that we look different from the many relations that everyone in the world sees with one another, biting and devouring one another. It teaches us how to live inwardly, outwardly, but also upwardly, godly. Again, the opposite of that ungodliness we saw earlier. To live reverently, to live obediently, to live conscious of God, and to live all of life as if we were before his face. Again, changes the way you are out in public, changes the way you are in private. Because there's a God who is in all places and sees all things. And if he's saved and he's rescued us, ought we not by grace to love and want to honor him? Grace teaches us. Spurgeon again, describing one who lives in this godly fashion, he writes, God will enter into all his calculations. God's presence will be his joy. God's strength will be his confidence. God's providence will be his inheritance. God's glory will be his chief end. God's law, the guide of his conversation. That's Spurgeon. Or more recently, Jerry Bridges from his book, The Discipline of Grace. Speaking of these three terms again, sensibly, righteously, godly. Sensibly, self-control, he writes, self-control expresses the self-restraint we need to practice toward the good and legitimate things of life, as well as the outright denial of things clearly sinful. Upright or righteous conduct refers to just and right actions toward other people, doing to them what we would have them do to us. Godliness is having a regard for God's glory and God's will in every aspect of our lives, doing everything out of reverence and love for him. And you'll notice back to the end of verse 12, when is this all to take place? When is this change to begin to occur? In the present age. Uh, Now, as it were. That's what grace does. It teaches us how to live in this world. Again, thinking of grace as our teacher, as if we're in school tonight, we could pause and ask, in light of this, how are we doing with the report card? The progress report comes home to our hearts. We look at it. Are we seeing some checks and check pluses or checks and check minuses? 
This is the provision that God has made and how many other passages of scripture begin to come to bear all the provision, all that God has provided, the change he's affected, the new nature that he's given us, freeing us even from that slavery to sin and giving us now a new master whom we are alive to, to live for, to love, to serve. we denying ungodliness? Are we renouncing and saying no to these worldly desires, seeking to turn from them? Are we turning to living a life that's sensible, self-controlled? Recognizing even as these desires come up, I don't have to give in. If this dishonors my Lord and my Master, I can say no and by His grace choose and seek and remember His truth that that would then reorient and replace that desire back onto the proper object, God Himself. And then to live righteously, again, not not in name only, but it impacts the way that I live. It impacts the way that I love my spouse, the way that I parent my children, the way that I interact with family members, interact with those in church. And ultimately that I would live godly in this present age. Is grace teaching you this? This is what grace is to teach us in the present. What we are to turn from, what we are to turn to. Second lesson found in verse 13. Not only does grace teach us how to live in the present, in this world, grace teaches us how to live for the next world. Really, how to long for the next world. Grace directs and orients us to the future. Grace lifts up our head that we're not like ostriches, right? Who just put their head in the sand. But lifts them up to look that there's a coming Savior that we long to see. That life is more than just what we can see and taste and hear and touch. that our Savior who ascended back into the heavens, there is coming a day when he's going to come back to this very earth. Paul speaks of it as the blessed hope. That we look for this blessed hope. We long for this blessed hope. We wait expectantly No doubt, not knowing the time or the hour. Come across a Bible teacher who tells you the signs of the times, maybe beware. 
but still longing, waiting, knowing at any time, at any hour, he can come back. That, again, is to impact the pattern of our life here and now. That we would even welcome with eagerness this blessed hope. And the Bible often talks about this in terms of that word hope. Hope, uh, the way the Bible speaks of it, different than the way that maybe you and I often speak of hope. Something we hope for, we wish for. Oh, I hope, you know, my favorite team could win the national championship. I hope a field goal would be made at the last moment when the clock strikes midnight and the new year enters in. Ah, those hopes can be disappointed. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it speaks of it as a confident reality, a certain expectation real, actual, to be trusted. And that's what the appearing of our Savior will be. He spoke of the first appearing of Christ back in verse 11. Now he looks to the second appearing, the second coming of Christ, verse 13, in the future, this return. And again, it's speaking of Christ Jesus, our great God and Savior, the grammar here all wrapped up speaking of who Christ is. Heaping up the terms, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, none other than Christ Jesus. By the way, one of those simple passages that just tucked in very easily, uh, clear affirmation of Christ's deity. God the Son is God of very God. That we look for it, we long for it. Can you go back to that first coming of Christ? In humility, the king arrives not with fanfare, not with pomp and circumstance, but in the humility of Bethlehem. But a second coming. I mean, we've just been studying that in Revelation, right? Cosmological signs. The sky being torn the the sky being rolled back like a scroll, all that John sees, that this rider on the white horse will come back in glory to this earth, Christ himself. The unveiling of his glory. And the thought of that is something you and I are to long for to look for eagerly in the full glory, the full splendor of this blessed hope. We, we get glimpses of it anytime a wedding occurs. You know, like the groom waiting for the doors to open. If he hasn't done that horrible thing known as the first look, I'm sorry, that's my personal opinion. I know, I admit that. to wait, to savor, to look for that moment when at last the doors open and he beholds his bride. 
the excitement, the anticipation, the expectancy, taste of that in weddings, how much greater will that be for the Christian when not the bride, but the groom comes, Christ comes in all of his glory. Again, what is this teaching us? It's reminding us the life that we live ain't all that there is. And ultimately, we're, we're not at home yet. The life of a Christian is often a hard life of a pilgrim. We're not yet in the celestial city. But we await that day, we long for that day, and grace teaches us down in the heart to pray and to long for the coming of the Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Progress report comes in again. This ought to change what we value and what we care about. And when you begin to look for his appearing in this way, you begin to see things from an eternal perspective. And it changes the value that you put on things in this life. It teaches you to hold things with an open hand before the Lord. Teaches you how to honor God. It shapes the human relationships. And no doubt ought to teach and instruct us to give ourselves to that which is eternally significant. Devoting ourselves to Christ. Devoting ourselves to his church. Investing ourselves in these things. Because it, its returns can't be matched. And with that, Paul could end, our study could end tonight, and we could all be beaten down, perhaps, by these progress reports. How often the Bible doesn't just end with teaching us and telling us how to live without giving us encouragement for why we live this way. And any time you find these commands, these imperatives woven throughout are the grand indicative statements of who God is and what he has done. And that's what we find in the next verse, verse 14. Thinking of this Savior, who is he? And sitting here tonight, who, who is the Savior that you've come this Wednesday night to worship? That we sung in a moment ago, I run to Christ. Who is it that we're running to? Who is it that we are to be telling others, he's my Savior and he can be yours too? Oh, Paul tells us. He's the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds how he's this savior again he he didn't send forth some other agent to be the savior he is the savior 
He's the one who went through the full humiliation in his first coming. He's the one who gave himself, living the life we were to live, dying then the death that we were to die, taking the punishment that should have been ours. He gave himself for us. The language of substitution. In my place, condemned he stood. The just for the unjust. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is who he is. And he gave himself, he suffered the punishment of the wrath of God upon himself on the cross. Why? To redeem us. To redeem us from what? From every lawless deed. He's the one who steps forward with the payment price to buy us out of that slavery from every lawless deed, from the tyranny of sin. He sets the captives free. And not only that, he has come and then giving himself, he he comes to purify for himself. Oh, what encouragement is here? Again, you go back to these worldly desires we're to turn from. The lusts that rage within that seem oft so strong. And yet the Savior by his grace is at work. As he's implanted his spirit inside of his people to begin this instruction, maybe at the elementary level, but then progressing to turn from them, to see the sin for what it is, to turn back to God, to serve and to love God, to hope and to long for God. And as that's happening, he's purifying, he's cleansing, he's changing Oh, I, I, we have to turn, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5 again. We, we just thought of the imagery of a wedding. Again, this is what Christ does corporately. If you are in this body here tonight, part of Christ's church, not something that you've earned, not something that you've merited, but by his grace having saved you from your sin, what is the Savior at work doing Ephesians 5, 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. He's taken all these filthy sinners brought them together in this body, and she being his bride, he begins the work of washing and purifying and cleansing. Why? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, 
I mean, a, a, a wedding gown unlike we've ever seen, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's what he's doing right now. Every time the word of God is opened and proclaimed, he's at work cleansing us, purifying us. That we then would even be a people for his own possession, loved, cared for, treasured by. I mean, who are you and who am I? I know but a measure of what I am, and it ain't much. But he sets his love, and as he cleans, it's a people for his own possession. Again, that that we then coast, that we then just hit cruise control for the rest of the Christian life. Again, going back to the practical, how does verse 14 end? that we would be zealous for good deeds. That's what grace does. Grace teaches us how to live in this world while also teaching us how to live for the next world. At any time in the Bible, truth is brought up about what's to happen at the end. It always brings back how that should change how we live here and now. But of course, it can only do that if you have come to this God in his grace, bowing before him, recognizing that he is this savior that God has provided and you're the one who has sinned against him. And then the life that he's given you now, even to be here at this point, He gives terms of peace. He gives the good news of the gospel that you can be forgiven and saved and welcomed in. All by repenting of your sin and calling out in faith to him. The gospel message given to all without distinction. Praise God. Young, old, male, female, rich, poor, black, white. Father, we thank you for our study tonight. With grace as our teacher. Thank you, Lord, for providing us this grace, grace that certainly is not to be abused. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Help us to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. To have this hope fixed on him, that we then would be purified as he is pure the kind of people that we ought to be who love and who celebrate the gospel. Help us, Lord. Bring encouragement. Thank you for always being at work to purify us. 
Help us then as we go from here to be your ambassadors. Ambassadors of this great good news of the gospel. We do pray, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.